Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer and here are today's top stories. The war between Israel and the Hamas terrorist group rages on. The death toll continues to rise and Israel says it has now gained control of certain areas. And more Americans now confirmed dead. What President Biden vows to do as U.S. citizens are being held hostage by Hamas terrorists. Not all Democratic lawmakers agree with Biden's support for Israel. Could others break away amid Israel's counteroffensive? Speaker Scalise or Speaker Jordan, the two representatives make their case before their colleagues today, even as some insist on reinstating former Speaker McCarthy. A former Trump employee took the stand today in the financial fraud case. The state's attorney probed former CFO Alan Weiselberg about valuing Trump's assets. And a baseball legend running for U.S. Senate. He's vying for the seat held by late Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein. Israel now says it has regained control of parts of its own territory as the war with Hamas continues. And just a warning, the following footage may be disturbing for some viewers. NTD's Jason Perry has the update for day four of the conflict. On Tuesday, the Hamas terrorist group fired rockets into Israel for the fourth consecutive day of intense battles. Israel's Iron Dome defense system intercepted most of the rockets. So far, reports show over 1,800 people have died from both sides, making it the fiercest fighting between Israel and Palestinians in several years. The conflict started after Hamas conducted a surprise terrorist attack on Israeli territory on Saturday, which is a day of rest and religious significance for the Jewish community. The terrorists killed over 1,000 Israelis and took over 100 hostages. Here's the aftermath of a music festival in Israel where the terrorists ran through killing hundreds of people in the attack. And the Hamas terrorist group said they would execute a hostage for each home hit by Israeli forces. But Israel defense forces retaliated with airstrikes anyway. And on Tuesday, Israeli forces reported hitting over 100 targets in the Al-Furqan area in Gaza. The Israeli military spokesman on Tuesday said the Hamas operatives have nowhere to hide in Gaza and they will reach them anywhere. We have switched to a different offensive method with waves of offensives. This is a continuation of the massive assaults of the Air Force over the past 36 hours. On Tuesday, Israel said it had reclaimed control of the south and the border with the Gaza Strip, but the fighting continues. Also on Tuesday, Israeli troops went house to house to retrieve civilian bodies. It's not a war. It's not a battlefield. You see the babies, the mothers, the fathers in their bedrooms, in their protection rooms, and how the terrorists kill them. It's not a war. It's not a battlefield. It's a massacre. It's a terror act. Activity. And on the other side of the war, this Gazan woman reported losing her brother, her husband's uncle, and her cousin in an airstrike. We have never witnessed strikes like this time. We thank God when the day is done, but they say it'll be worse. We wonder what else could happen to us. The coming days could be harsher. Our hearts will ache more for the loss of our loved ones. Israel is not only facing attacks from Gaza. Lebanon's Hezbollah said they fired a guided missile at an Israeli tank on Tuesday. Israel said no one was hurt in the attack. Jason Perry, NTD News. 
And Israeli troops fired shells towards Syria earlier today, according to the Israel Defense Forces. The IDF says they were firing back at a number of launches from Syria. Some landed in open areas on Israeli territory. The development raises fear of a wider regional conflict. There were no reports of damage or injuries. At least 14 Americans are dead, while some are being held hostage. President Biden today calling Hamas attacks sheer evil and vowing to stand with Israel. Joining us now live is NTD's White House correspondent, Iris Tau. Good evening, Iris. What is President Biden saying as the conflict in the Middle East escalates? Good evening to you, Tiv. So President Biden today confirmed that among the 1,000 people killed in Israel, there were 14 American citizens, and that is up from 11 that he announced just yesterday. And today, President Biden went on to double down on U.S. support for Israel's ongoing defense by saying that if the U.S. were attacked by Hamas in the same way, our response would also be overwhelming. Here's what he said. A group whose stated purpose for being to kill Jews. This is an act of sheer evil. We stand with Israel. The White House told us today that at least 20 Americans are missing in Israel, and President Biden confirmed that some Americans are being held hostage by Hamas. The White House says it's working hour by hour to try to determine the exact number of American hostages. Meanwhile, U.S. citizens living in Israel are calling on the Biden administration to try to help them find their missing family members. Here's what they said at a press conference. Watch. To bring the U.S. citizens back home safe and sound, we expect nothing less from the U.S. administration. He's an arm length away in Gaza, evidently, but couldn't be farther from me. If there ever was a moment of good against evil, in the harshest terms, this is it. The U.S. is sharing intelligence as well as sending experts to Israel to try to help them find missing Israeli and American citizens. Of course, the U.S. is also sending over air defense as well as weapons to try to help them defend themselves. The first plane carrying Amer American ammunition has arrived in Israel just today, and a U.S. carrier strike group has also arrived in the eastern Mediterranean. The White House says that is to send a deterrence posture toward country nearby that might want to widen the conflict. And that's as U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is scheduled to travel to Israel this Thursday to both try to learn more about the situation on the ground and to send a message of support. Back to you. Iris, thank you for that update. What is it like on the ground in Jerusalem? And what would happen if Hamas were to execute hostages as it's been threatening? We spoke with the CEO of Jewish News Syndicate and the chief of the Jerusalem Bureau. Alex Treyman, thank you so much for joining us. Good to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Alex, you're in Jerusalem right now. Give us a sense of the mood there. Are people afraid? Are they leaving? Well, Jerusalem's probably been one of the quietest places uh, over the last four days. Uh, the, the harshest uh, brutality took place along Israel's southern border with Gaza, where over a thousand people were killed, and within a 15-mile radius of the Gaza Strip. Uh, there's also been 10,000 rockets uh, fired from Gaza 
Remember that Gaza is a coastal enclave, and actually most Israelis live near the coast as well. They fire Qassam rockets, which are not that sophisticated, so they just shoot them up the coast uh, primarily. And we have had a few volleys towards Jerusalem, but uh, none have hit. Um, but people are concerned that this uh, may erupt into a much wider war, and uh, people have been uh, going to the supermarkets, emptying shelves, stocking up. Uh, schools are closed. There's a lot of children in Israel, so they're all home right now. Uh, and, and people are very, very nervous about what could come next. There are reports calling Jerusalem a ghost town, and Israel is now calling on its 300,000 reservists. This seems to be in what looks to be a preparation for a ground invasion. What will be Israel's objective here? Well, Israel has basically stated that it's their objective to make sure that Hamas can never do something like this again. Prime Minister Netanyahu said uh, that he it wants to create a new Middle East and they want to uh, change the face of the region for generations. Uh, the defense minister, Yoav Gallant, has said that uh, he wants to put a complete siege on Gaza. That's going to be a complete 180-degree turn from whatever uh, Hamas and Gazans thought was going to happen. Uh, there was a tweet from Barack Obama just yesterday uh, which stated that America supports Israel in its uh, in its agenda to completely, quote, dismantle Hamas. And so I think that uh, they actually want to completely remove Hamas from power, not just as a terror entity, but also as a pseudo-governmental actor. And on the flip side, what is Hamas's end goal here following their surprise attack over the weekend? Well, you know, Hamas's goal has always been to not just destroy Israel, but to delegitimize Israel. Uh, and and what they always do is hide behind their own civilians as human shields, hoping that Israel will exact a, a punishment and, and create a, a large death toll in Gaza, which will then get international support you know, to come against the state of Israel. Uh, and it's not clear what Hamas's true end goal is, uh, but they are about to find out uh, what Israel's goal for, for Hamas is going to be, because even though Hamas has shocked Israel with uh, an utter disaster in the beginning of this battle. Uh, they've awakened the sleeping beast over here, and uh, Israelis are so upset. And the IDF is a much, much, much stronger player, one of the strongest militaries in the world, and they're going to exact punishment on Gaza very soon. And now Hamas is threatening to execute hostages live on TV. That's in the case of unannounced Israeli strikes. What is the hostage situation in Gaza? Yeah, there's a uh, as many as 150 hostages uh, taken into the Gaza Strip. Uh, we can be sure that many of them are being held uh, either in tunnels that Hamas has built uh, underground in an extensive network. Uh, those tunnels are, are highly booby-trapped. Uh, these are going they're going to be hidden in urban centers. Uh, there's also worry that uh, some of the hostages may already have been taken out of the Gaza Strip by the Rafah border crossing uh, with Egypt, which was only bombed uh, earlier today and was open for, for several days. Um, if Hamas starts to execute hostages uh, with live videos, I think that what's going to happen is that it's only going to reinforce uh, the idea around the world and within Israel about how barbaric uh, Hamas actually is. And I, I think it's not going to discourage Israel from wanting to take Hamas out of power. It's going to encourage them to, to finish the job once and for all. And among the rising death toll are American citizens. What can we expect from the U.S. beyond sending this aircraft carrier group? How will the U.S. get involved? 
Well, the you know, President Biden, he committed to not just moving the aircraft carrier, but to restocking the Iron Dome system, which shoots the Qassam rockets out of the sky and sending other munitions here as well. Uh, the question would be if the United States would send some of the critical equipment that uh, Israel has wanted for a long time, including bunker buster bombs and uh, refueling planes, which Israel could potentially use against an attack on Iranian nuclear infrastructure. And don't forget that Iran is the is the head of the terror snake in the Middle East, and they are the, the backers of Hezbollah to Israel's north and also Hamas to Israel's south. Uh, and so their question is, will this... Uh, expand into a multi-front con conflict, uh, not just with Hamas, but also with Hezbollah? And would Israel uh, finally decide that it has no choice but to uh, take action against Iran? And the question is, will the United States assist them with the weapons that they need to do that? A lot at stake here, for sure. Well, Alex Trayman, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Some Democrats fear support for Israel among their party might be waning. This comes as some lawmakers voice support for Palestine, while others are distancing themselves. Some Democrats reportedly fear that members of their party might stop supporting Israel. Sentiments in the U.S. in the past few days since the attacks were mostly pro-Israel. However, that might change. One unnamed Democratic lawmaker told Politico... For the last couple of days, we've seen all the pictures of girls who were killed at this festival and the children. The lawmaker says this will change now as the counteroffensive begins. The only images we're going to see for the next couple of weeks are dead Palestinians. Earlier this year, a Gallup poll found that Democrats' opinions on Israel have changed significantly. 49% of Democrats now say they sympathize more with Palestine, while only 38% say they sympathize more with Israel. That's the first time more Democrats have said their sympathies are more with Palestine than with Israel in the 20 years the poll has been conducted. Another Democratic lawmaker told Politico the key is making sure that this sentiment doesn't grow and metastasize. Meanwhile, Democratic Representative Rashida Tlaib is still flying the Palestinian flag in front of her office. Republican Congressman Max Miller commented on that, saying, The Palestinian flag should not have a place here. That's why I sponsored an appropriations amendment to end this silliness. Under the amendment, foreign flags couldn't be displayed on Capitol Hill. And in New York City, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is distancing herself from a pro-Palestine rally. The rally took place just two days after Palestinian terrorists killed hundreds of Israelis. This led to people questioning the timing of the rally, while Israelis were still mourning their dead. AOC, who's usually very pro-Palestine, told Playbook, the bigotry and callousness expressed in the Times Square on Sunday were unacceptable and harmful in this devastating moment. It is unclear whether the pro-Palestine rally was prompted by the attacks. Republicans meeting with a critical test of unity tonight in a candidate forum. Representative Jim Jordan and Majority Leader Steve Scalise are both making their cases for why they should be the next speaker. NTD's Melina Weiskup joins us from Capitol Hill, where members are meeting this evening. Melina, you just heard from former Speaker Kevin McCarthy. What did he have to say? 
by Tiffsy. Uh, just moments ago, about 30 minutes into the candidate forum, the former speaker came out and told reporters that he told his conference not to nominate him for that speakership position, which is huge. It changed the dynamics here because there were some members who were vowing to continue to nominate McCarthy, even if either Scalise or Jordan had the majority of the support from the conference. So with McCarthy now saying this, it kind of makes it a little bit more certain that it will be either Jordan or Scalise and not uh, dividing the party even further. But on that point, another message that we gather from McCarthy is that he couldn't give us any assurance that his party could get closer to a consensus or even make a decision either by tonight, tomorrow, or an even longer period of time, instead saying this. I think those who are running are going to have to unite people. They have to show out a clear plan. And I think it's good for members in there to talk about it, be honest with one another. But I do believe they should make that decision in there before we go back to the floor, especially in the situation we are in the world. Now, McCarthy also would not nominate or throw his support behind either Scalise or Jordan, instead saying that he would support either candidate, whichever, whichever one had the majority of the support from the conference, which is also what we've heard from some other members who are saying that even if they support one candidate and the other one has the majority of support from the conference, they would then change their minds and vote to support that one instead to move this process ahead and quickly rally behind one speaker. But as of today, Tiff, we were talking to a couple of members, and it doesn't seem like there's a consensus at this point, of course, we just heard from the former speaker. He wouldn't directly answer my question about that. Um, so we'll show you exactly what those other members had to say. They said they were supporting Jim Jordan, although these couple are not representative, of course, of the other 200 members that are uh, then uh, having to decide as well. But also they gave two different perspectives about the unity in the party and how they're feeling coming into tonight's candidate forum. Take a look. And I felt overall yesterday uh, the conversations, including what was said by some of the people who were not on board with Kevin, I think they realized it would look very foolish if they wanted to, in essence, throw out the second elected speaker in two weeks. Um, right now, uh, I'm I'm for Jim Jordan. Jim Jordan is is as works as hard as anybody I know here on Congress. He runs circles around everybody else, and that's what the American people want. That's what the American people deserve. And it, well, it sounds like some people want to continue to divide our party and, and nominate a third candidate for speaker. So what you just heard from Congresswoman Mace, uh, she did mention that she's frustrated about some members wanting to nominate that third person, which of course she's referring to former Speaker Kevin McCarthy. That's less of an issue now because McCarthy came out and said that he told this conference not to nominate him. But another big question in mind is also the rules, the motion to vacate specifically, which is what got us here in the first place. There's also some Republicans who are saying they don't want to support either Scalise or Jordan if neither of them are willing to address the motion to vacate and change it so that it doesn't only take one member to call up that motion and oust the speaker, say, two weeks from now. So that's also something that there's not really a consensus on. There's also some discussion about some internal rules about whether or not they need to decide upon one speaker with a certain amount of votes before they come to the full floor for that public vote. We know with this candidate forum, their goal here is, yes, to allow Scalise and Jordan to lay out their vision for the House moving forward, but the bigger part of this is that they 
they do want to unite behind one speaker internally before they come to the floor publicly for a vote so that we don't see what we saw in January with those 15 rounds or more of uh, dis dis uh, discord within the Republican Party. So they are expected to meet internally for that vote and could vote publicly as early as tomorrow, but that could change if they aren't able to get it together between tonight and tomorrow and actually unite behind one decision of a speaker. Tiff? Melina, thank you for that update. The Trump Organization's ex-CFO said that the penthouse apartment in Trump Tower was not a significant property. That was one of Alan Weiselberg's responses today during his testimony in the Trump financial fraud case. NTD's legal correspondent Arlene Richards has more. The state grilled Trump's former chief financial officer, Alan Weisselberg, on Tuesday about his involvement in valuing Trump's assets. As the CFO, Weisselberg signed off on numerous financial statements that are at the heart of the state's case. Weisselberg generally testified that he signed off on the financial statements, but he didn't have a clear understanding of the basic accounting principles that needed to be followed. He said the process for preparing the statements involved several people in the Trump organization. Weisselberg would have skimmed through the statement focusing on the larger assets before signing it. The CFO said he relied on the accounting firm Mazars to conduct its own review. They would have advised him if anything needed to be corrected. The state specifically asked Weisselberg about a 2016 financial statement submitted to Forbes that said the size of Donald Trump's apartment in Trump Tower was around 30,000 square feet, when it actually was closer to 11,000 square feet. Weisselberg explained that he would not have paid attention to it because he didn't focus on assets that were 5% or less of the overall net worth. Other notable witnesses expected in the coming weeks include Eric Trump, Donald Trump Jr., and Donald Trump. Weisselberg said he didn't directly consult with the Trumps about the financial statements. It will be interesting to hear what they say about how this process works. Tiffany? New records show that President Biden was involved in his son and brother's businesses as vice president. America First Legal published the records from the National Archives following a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit. National Archives records show that then-Vice President Biden's office exchanged over 19,000 emails with Hunter Biden's investment firm, Rosemont Seneca, over 4,000 emails with Hunter Biden himself, over 1,700 emails with his brother, James Biden, and over 3,700 emails with James Biden's Lion Hall Group. Biden has previously claimed he was not involved in his son and brother's business dealings. America First Legal said on X today, quote, there was extensive commingling between them. The House Oversight Committee, which has been investigating the Biden's family business dealings, also commented, saying Biden's statement, quote, doesn't match his track record. A former baseball MVP runs for U.S. Senate. Dodger legend Steve Garvey puts in his pitch as a Republican candidate. Here's NTD's David Lamb with more. California baseball legend Steve Garvey announced his bid on Tuesday as a Republican candidate for U.S. Senate. Well, it's really a, a Steve Garvey campaign. It's really a common sense campaign uh, with comp compassion. The seat was held by the late Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein. 74-year-old Garvey, a former Los Angeles Dodgers and San Diego Padres first baseman, brings star power that could distinguish his candidacy in a crowded field. On Monday, Garvey said, And I believe it's time. It's time for change in Californian leadership. 
I think a year from now I'll be elected to the U.S. Senate uh, because as I decided to stand up and, and be a, a voice for uh, quality of life of, of the people of California in this country. In an interview with Fox 11, when asked about pro-life or pro-choice, Garvey said the most important thing for a senator to do is to pledge to uphold the voice of the people. As for the Israel-Palestine war, he says he supports Israel. If he advances to the general election, Garvey could pose more of a challenge to Democrats' razor-thin majority in the Senate than most California Republicans. And I never took the field for Democrats or Republicans or independents. I, I took the field for all the fans. And now I'm running for all the people. On the ousting of Kevin McCarthy. This goes back to the dysfunction of, of Washington, that so few people could take down the Speaker of the House of Representatives is sad. Uh, this man was elected to do a two-year job. Um, you know, I believe in getting a chance to fight the good fight and run the good race, uh, and that's been taken away. Garvey is known for his cheerful personality and availability with reporters and fans. The former MVP and All-Star left baseball in 1987. Since then, Garvey has done charity work for health-related organizations, including Ronald McDonald House and the ALS Society. So far, 14 candidates, including six Republicans, plan to run next year, according to Federal Election Commission data. California, which has not elected a Republican to the Senate since 1988, will vote in the November 2024 general election to fill Feinstein's seat. In California, David Lamb, NTD News. Up next, a rabbi describes the actions of the Hamas terrorists as crimes against humanity. Will they ever be brought to justice? We'll explore potential responses to the situation in Israel when we come back. Welcome back. As the world struggles to process the brutal killings of Israeli civilians by Hamas terrorists, the question arises, will Hamas be held accountable? To discuss potential responses to the situation in Israel, we spoke with a rabbi who is the chair of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. Rabbi Abraham Cooper, thank you so much for joining us. Good to have you here. Nice to be back. Rabbi, the horrors of what's unfolding in Israel is being broadcasted around the world. Hamas is now threatening to execute hostages live on TV. That's in the case of unannounced Israeli strikes. Your center is calling for Hamas to be charged with crimes against humanity. Give us a sense of just how serious this is. Well, uh, our center carries the name of a man named Simon Wiesenthal. He was a victim of the Holocaust. He lost 89 members of his family, and he became the famous Nazi hunter and campaigner for justice. So uh, the fact that we carry his name also means that when you see, I never thought I would say this, but when you see Nazi-like actions that in some ways are worse than the Nazis, because one of the great challenges in bringing Nazi war criminals to justice is the Nazis worked very hard to hide the facts of the emerging genocide, of the final solution. The Hamas terrorists are live streaming and broadcasting 
their crimes against humanity all over the world. And unfortunately, now in the days when Israeli uh, soldiers have finally gotten back full control of uh, the territory, they discover in one kibbutz alone the bodies of 40 babies. They, you know, the decapitation of babies and, and the rest I don't even want to describe. But you have mass murder, you have kidnapping, you have mass rape, uh, and you have here the targeting of civilians, merciless mass murder. Um, this is a very uh, serious issue, and it is something that the international community has, both international law, international tradition, if you went, a will, the International Criminal Court, the United Nations. There's no shortage of judicial addresses where this can be dealt with. The real issue is, will there, will there be political will on the part of any nation uh, in order to hold Hamas terrorism accountable? That's still a big question mark. And expanding on that, we are seeing world leaders, including some members of Congress, cheering on Hamas. And as you mentioned, children are among the brutally murdered here. Why do you think that is? Give us a sense of what's at the heart of this. Well, for one thing, uh, the uh, Hamas has always been fighting an asymmetrical war. They know they can't defeat on their own, and even with Iranian help, in a straight military battle against Israel. But their founding charter actually uh, is a genocidal one, and it even invokes the uh, anti-Semitic protocols of the elders of Zion in their founding document. So say one thing about this group. From the beginning, you know, they've said it, and now they've had an opportunity uh, to kill more Jews in a single day, to murder more Jews uh, than uh, any time since the end of the Second World War. Uh, and for, uh, I think, because the Palestinian Authority is so thoroughly corrupt, uh, and there are uh, many young uh, Palestinians uh, who've grown up on a steady diet, really, of a war curriculum, even though they're in UNRWA schools and there are 60 donor nations uh, paying for it. They've all been brainwashed and educated, A, to hate Israelis, B, to deny any legitimacy to their neighbors, even being in that land, uh, and, and C, to embrace a culture of death. So in that sense, the people who are on the ground, those who embrace it, you can perhaps see some context. What is also completely shocking is how the, the goals of Hamas, no two-state solution, is to get rid of Israel, uh, and the methods that the world has been shocked to seeing are now all justified in these uh, statements released by student leaders at Harvard, uh, by students for justice of Palestine in, in uh, various elite universities across the United States. And what I've been saying actually for the last few days is we're waiting for presidents of universities to finally start to push back and to basically say, hey, wait a second, you want to stand up for the future rights of your people, the Palestinians, to have their own homeland. If that includes genocide along the way, you'll have to excuse the rest of us if we no longer embrace what it is you're bringing to the table. They're not hearing it from the university elite, quite the contrary. 
Um, we're not hearing an outpouring uh, from corporate America, although very interestingly, Major League Baseball now and the NBA, uh, I think Jamie Dimon, a few others have expressed solidarity with what just happened, this horrific series of massacres. But overall, we still see a uh, gnawing silence. Uh, I wouldn't say so much an indifference, but I think a lack of courage on the part of uh, the captains of industry and the people who are supposed to be educating our young people, a failure to draw the line in the sand. And the more you give, uh, in terms of rhetoric, uh, a free pass and justify everything that's said in the name of freedom of speech, uh, the more we're going to see anti-Semitism increase, intimidation of Jews on campus increase, the demonization of Israel, etc. This is a very, very uh, dangerous time, but it's also a moment of opportunity for people to take a deep breath and say, hey, wait a second, when did you sign us up for genocide? And Rabbi, speaking of the U.S., Americans are also among the dead. The U.S. is sending an aircraft carrier group to that area. Israel has always fought its own wars. But in what ways can the U.S. help Israel? Well, I think there are uh, two ways. Number one, uh, they're going to need certain kinds of munitions. They're going to need uh, help to make sure they have enough uh, missile interceptor missiles for the Iron Dome. But more importantly is for the United States to send a signal to Tehran because the murders here and the hatred is all being expressed by Hamas, but the, those who did the training and paid the bill are all in Tehran. And so a message has to go out to the Iranians. If you dare cross the line and uh, flip the switch for your other lackeys, Hezbollah, in Lebanon, where they have 150,000 missiles targeting Israel, and many of them with GPS, if that starts, then the United States will probably have to intervene directly. And that means not uh, only to save Israel, but you have the entire Gulf region that would be under the thumb of the Iranians. That could lead to a much wider configuration. Uh, and that's something that certainly the United States doesn't want, Israel doesn't want, Saudi doesn't want, but the Ayatollah Khomeini may want it. And the only way he would be stopped is if he saw the calculus and said, no, I can't take on the little devil, Israel, and the big devil, the United States, at the same time. And maybe he'll take a step back to the brink. But it depends really, first, um, how President Biden um, puts forward the U.S. Uh, approach, which means full support for Israel, which means a commitment to get out all of the hostages. Uh, you know, there are Thai hostages, Italian. It, it's, it's I think, 15 different countries. But certainly making sure that the American hostages, if possible, be brought out uh, safely. Condemning Hamas uh, and sending a signal to the Gulf neighbors that this time we have your back. Whatever we did with the Iranians in terms of releasing $13 billion and, they, and loosening sanctions, uh, snapping back those sanctions, adding the Ayatollah Khomeini to the sanction list, there's a lot that the President of the United States and the United States Congress can do. 
both symbolic and uh, practically. Um, but right now, this is one of the most dangerous moments, I think, uh, in the 21st century. Rabbi Abraham Cooper, thank you so much for your time. Coming up, Israel now preparing for a massive invasion of Gaza. We explain what the Gaza Strip is, where it's located, and why it's hard to target terrorists in the densely populated region. And across the U.S., business leaders are showing support for Israel. That includes the likes of J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs. Red dyes, fentanyl and insulin, all targeted in California's newest laws. It's a race against the clock as the governor continues to review and act on hundreds of bills passed this year. That's coming up. Turning back to the Israel war and its mission to eliminate the terrorist group Hamas, Israel is now preparing to invade the Gaza Strip. What is the Gaza Strip and why is the invasion risky? Here's more. Israeli battle helicopters, tanks and soldiers prepare for a mass invasion of the Gaza Strip. We are very ready. We are ready from the air and from the land. The invasion will be one of Israel's riskiest military actions yet. The Gaza Strip is a small Palestinian enclave. It's one of the two main Palestinian territories, but is entirely cut off from the much larger West Bank. It's surrounded by Israel to the east and Egypt to the southwest. It's one of the most crowded areas of the world. This area is extremely, extremely difficult for soldiers because very narrow streets, um, very easy to set up um, ambushes against Israeli soldiers, booby trap doorways. Harley Lippmann was a key broker of the Abraham Accords, the peace agreements between Israel, the UAE, and Bahrain. Lippmann says the Gaza Strip is very small, smaller than Chicago, but with a population of over two million people. Hamas has very few traditional military bases, so the terrorists hide among the people of Gaza, making them very hard to target. It's a tragedy for the Palestinian people because Hamas doesn't care about them. The Hamas leaders are hidden in well-fortified bunkers away from Israeli forces or have fled the nation, where they leave the Palestinian people to deal with Israel's um, military action. Many Palestinians have already died from Israel's preliminary airstrikes. Hospitals in Gaza are overwhelmed with mass casualties and are running low on medical supplies. Ambulances are running out of fuel. The UN is calling for both Israel and Hamas to immediately cease attacks that could harm civilians. The organization says that at least 200,000 Palestinians now have no homes, either because their homes were destroyed or because they had to flee for their lives. It's currently unclear when the ground invasion will begin. A quarter, NTD News. Across the U.S., business leaders are expressing support and standing in solidarity with Israel. This includes banks ranging from J.P. Morgan Chase to Goldman Sachs and others. We spoke with NTD Business host Don Ma for more. Don Ma, thanks for joining us. Good to see you again. Yeah, great to be here, Tiffany. To begin, what are businesses saying? You know, Tiffany, 
what happened to Israel? You know, it's it's a terrible thing. Hundreds of people have died from both sides, and business leaders and CEOs are recognizing this. Uh, J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon said that the bank stands with Israel and is also instructing employees there to work remotely for the foreseeable future. Uh, this is according to CNN sources. Uh, he's calling what happened a terrible tragedy, and you know it really is, Tiffany. He says. We stand with our employees, the families, and the people of Israel. Uh, and as well, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, uh, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, same thing here. It told its employees located in Israel to stay home at this time. Uh, it's expre expressing solidarity. It's saying it's thinking of the families in the face of this conflict. So uh, a lot of uh, groups and uh, companies uh, standing with uh, Israel right now some horrific images coming out of there, but how are businesses with a presence in Israel doing right now? Well, it comes as no surprise that a number of global companies have temporarily shut some operations there. And as I mentioned earlier, they're also asking employees to work from home. And let me just give you some examples here, Tiffany. There are actually a lot of companies that are doing this right now, and there's a wide ranging of sectors that are impacted, like travel, oil, banks, tech, consumer and retail and more. So for travel, Delta Airlines decided to cancel uh, Delta-operated Tel Aviv flights through October 31st. And I've already mentioned banks. Uh, so for retail clothing company H&M, uh, it said its local franchise partner has temporarily closed all stores in Israel. And as for oil, uh, Chevron, the number two U.S. oil and gas producer, has been instructed uh, by Israel's energy ministry to shut down the Tamar natural gas field off the country's northern coast. Uh, so that's just an overview. And Don, speaking of oil, how much have oil prices risen following this conflict? Yeah, uh, so oil prices surged 4% on Monday. Brent and WTI went, went up more than 350 on Monday. And, and Tiffany, what it comes down to is whether major oil producing countries will be involved in this conflict when we're talking about this topic, you know, about oil prices and supply risks. And I think one potential risk, let me just mention, uh, for oil prices is how tensions between Israel and Iran play out. Um, because analysts are saying that if a clear link to Iran is found uh, to the attack in Israel, some kind of intervention by the United States cannot be ruled out here. Uh, and that would likely entail in, you know, things like tighter enforcement of existing sanctions on Iran's oil exports. And should Washington do that, uh, if it decides to tighten uh, the sanctions, current flows to the global oil market might be compromised. So if that happens, I mean, oil prices could go even higher than what we're seeing now. Some broad ramifications there. Well, Donma, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, great to be here, Tiffany. In domestic news, California Governor Gavin Newsom signed more bills into law this week. Here's NTD's Eileen Ang with some of the more prominent ones. California became the first state to ban four chemicals used in well-known candies and other foods and drinks because of their link to certain health problems. Newsom signed a law banning the red dye number three chemical used as food coloring for products like Peeps marshmallow candy. The chemical has been linked to cancer and banned from makeup for more than 30 years. 
The law also bans brominated vegetable oil, which is used in some store brand sodas, and potassium bromate and propylparaben, two chemicals used in baked goods. Under another law, Californians with untreated mental illness and drug or alcohol addiction issues would be required to receive treatment. The move is part of the state's efforts to address its growing homelessness crisis. It also expands the definition of gravely disabled to include people who are unable to provide themselves with basic needs such as food and shelter. And now some schools would be required to have fentanyl tests. This applies to California state universities and community colleges. The tests can take the form of small strips of paper that detects fentanyl in drugs. Newsom also vetoed some bills. One would have prevented insurance companies from charging more than $35 for insulin. The governor said earlier this year that California would soon start making its own brand of insulin. The state has a $50 million contract with nonprofit pharmaceutical company Savica RX to manufacture the insulin under the brand CalRx. The state would sell a 10-millimeter vial of insulin for $30. He also vetoed legislation that would have required dozens of the state's largest cities, counties, and educational districts to use independent commissions to draw voting districts. California's local redistricting methods came under scrutiny last year following a leaked recording of a private discussion among several Los Angeles City Council members. Newsom has until October 14th to act on any remaining bills that lawmakers have sent to his desk. Coming up, the NHL season begins anew tonight, but with a change in their social justice plans. Find out what's happening with their Pride Nights when we return. We'll have details after the break. Welcome back, and now for your sports news, here's NTD's Dave Martin with a look at the betting favorite to win this year's Stanley Cup. That's right, Tiff. Just four months after the Las Vegas Golden Knights won the Stanley Cup, the new season starts today. Interestingly though, Vegas isn't the betting favorite to repeat as champions. In fact, they're not even in the top five. Caesars Sportsbook has the Carolina Hurricanes as the Cup favorites at 7.5 to 1 odds, followed by Colorado and Edmonton at 8 to 1. The Golden Knights, meanwhile, are actually 6th at 12 to 1 odds. Now, elsewhere, the league has also tweaked their Pride Night celebration guidelines. No longer can players choose to participate by wearing Pride-themed warm-up jerseys or the rainbow-colored stick tape. This after several players last season refused to participate, some citing their religious beliefs. Now, in all fairness, it should also be noted that the league is also banning any special warm-up jerseys for military appreciation games, as well as their hockey fights cancer nights. And in NFL news, Minnesota Vikings wide receiver Justin Jefferson will miss at least the next four games with a hamstring injury. According to a report by ESPN, Jefferson will be placed on injured reserve, meaning he can't be activated until week 10 at the earliest. Jefferson was injured Sunday in a loss to the Chiefs. The fourth-year wideout led the league in receiving yards and receptions last season in being named the league's Offensive Player of the Year. And for your sports viewing schedule today, a pair of baseball playoff games. First, Houston plays at Minnesota this afternoon, while Baltimore is at Texas tonight, trailing 2-0 in a best-of-five set. The Orioles will start Dean Kramer opposite Texas's Nathan Eovaldi. 
And in the NHL, triple header as Nashville plays at Tampa in a game already in progress. Then tonight, Pittsburgh hosts Chicago and number one pick Connor Bedard, while the reigning champion Vegas Golden Knights will start their title defense against the Seattle Kraken. And that's it for your sports news today. Tiff, back to you. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.